Hi, I'm Dean Ron Savage, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have a really great episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we've got Ron Savage with us. Now serving as the Dean of the Performance Division, Ron was also a Berkeley student, later a professor, and then the chair of the ensemble department for 17 years. Dean Savage is also an acclaimed jazz drummer who's performed around the world with folks like Mulgrew Miller, Nena Freeland, Clark Terry, Sam Rivers, and Albert King, and has also co-authored a drum set method book on Berkeley Press. Dean Savage goes deep in this interview and gives some really great advice for a holistic approach to developing as a musician. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Ron Savage. to another Coffee Talk. I'm Kim Perlack, Chair of the Guitar Department. And today we've got with us Cheryl Bailey, as usual, Assistant Chair. Hey, Cheryl. Welcome. Hey, everybody. And Ian Steed, our Senior Coordinator. Hey, all. Yep. And today our special guest is our leader in the Performance Division, Dean Ron Savage. Hey, Ron. Hey, Kim. <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to uh, be part of Coffee Talk today. <laughs> This is so great. So Ron is our Dean in the performance division. He's also a drummer that's had a tremendous career playing with all kinds of people. His stories will surprise you. And it was a faculty member for a long time. So you have every perspective of everything that people want to know who listen to Coffee Talk. So we're really glad you're here. Um, So the first thing that people want to know is, are you a coffee drinker? So there's a bit of a story to that. (laughs) Okay. Right. I do drink coffee, but I am a complete coffee snob. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have to admit it, I only drink coffee in Italy. Wow. So when I say I'm a coffee snob, I'm not kidding around. I only drink coffee in Italy. Uh, all, all the rest of the time I drink tea. And I do drink tea sometimes in Italy, which was quite shocking to my Italian friends when I sat down at the restaurant and ordered take home limone. They were like, really? You know, no, no, this is in London. This is, you know, Perugia or wherever we were, you know, Milan, Milano or something. So I do drink coffee, but I only drink it uh, in Italy and I drink it with a lot of raw sugar. Only raw sugar, no refined sugar, only raw sugar, and a bit of it. What is the specific part? Like, what are the characteristics of the Italian coffee that make it just so special to you that you can't reproduce it? It's strong, mm-hmm. and the the richness of the flavor. Like, whenever, you know, you, you know whenever I get coffee, espresso, whatever, in the States, by comparison, I feel like I'm drinking dishwater. And so I, I I admit I'm copping to it. I'm a snob. I'm a coffee snob. I'm not like, I'm not trying to deny that. I'm a complete coffee snob. 
This is great. So what we found is that um, there's so much of the way people talk about their coffee that's very similar to the way they are about music and the way they are about everything that they do. So I wonder what we'll find. I mean, my, my sense is that we're going to find that you really have a strong musical personality and that you're looking for that richness and you're looking for the best things that you're not compromising in your musicianship either. Well, I'd say, you know, I, I probably look for earthiness in everything. Mm. I would say that, you know, it, it doesn't matter the musical style or the genre or the era or the instrument. I would say that in the same way I look for that richness and, and, and earthiness and, and, and uh, I don't want to say, I'm trying to say a distinct flavor. I think that's what I look for in music and, and musicians. I look for just, I want it to be real. I want it to have come from, you know, uh, the way I describe music, where I come from, people, when they stand up and sing in church, they're singing from the earth up. It's almost like their feet are planted in the ground and they're transmitting through themselves something that's greater than themselves. So that's what I look for in musicians. Uh, that's what I look for in, in coffee and food and, and people, people who are, I like to be around people who are grounded and real. You, you don't have to be like me in personality, but I want you to be grounded in who you are because I can identify that. So I guess there is some truth to that because I like that bold, strong, rich, uh, earthy flavor in Italian coffee, so. That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. So it kind of plays right into the next question in, in your case, which is generally, we talk about first days at Berkeley. And for you, you had so many different first days. You were a student, your faculty member, assistant chair, chair, dean. Parent. <laughs> Parent. Parent. My son went to Berkeley for three summers and a seven-week student. Before the five-week program, there was a seven-week program. So I actually went to the seven-week program, came back as a student, uh, went through all the other variations. And then my son went for three, three summers um, before deciding he didn't want to do music full-time. So yeah, I've seen it from a lot of uh, um, different angles. So when you came on your very first, first day, when you were very young, what, what do you remember about that? And what do you remember about who you were? Did you come feeling like already grounded in music and, and in kind of who you, what you wanted to do on the drums? Or, or what did that feel like when you first came to um, Well, I, I didn't know very much in terms of uh, what we think of music school preparation. I, um, had lessons for a small, short time when I was a child from eight to 12 years old. And then pretty much it was just me and playing the high school band and stuff like that. So when I came, I was 16 years old. I came from a small town. Uh, I had never seen an airplane until I got on it to come to school. I had never seen a subway or I had never been in a taxi. Wow. Yeah. When I was 16 and came to Boston and um, what I remember is that kind of the liveliness, the vitality, 
the diversity of people and things and activities and events. Um, I mean, I, I knew I was at the right, like I didn't know anything. I didn't know anybody. I couldn't play very well at all. Uh, I could read a little bit because I had really taught myself a little bit how to read. Uh, but just walking up and down the streets, seeing record stores, uh, I had never been in a real record store. I had never been in a music instrument store. We, we used to buy our musical equipment from the uh, uh, hunting and fishing store. They used to call it auto sports. So you would go there and buy your baseball bats, your carburetor, your oil filters, your tires, your fishing tackle, your your hunting gear and your hunting rifle. And then it had a little case where they had guitars and some drumsticks and they had a catalog and you could order drumsticks and a drum head and stuff. So that's how I used to get my drum heads. I go to the auto Eddie Harrell's auto sports store. And that's how we would order our gear. My brother would order his guitar strings. And sometimes we would just go look at the catalog, you know, like, wow, there's such thing as an electric piano. You know, we had, we had never seen those things in a small town. So when I got here and there were strawberry records, you know, and, and when the, I found out the record store at the time was open 24 hours a day, I almost, you know, you hear, you know, you hear people talking about mind blown and stuff. Now that was, coming from a, 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 a town where the radio station went off when the sun went down and coming to a place where the record store, the record store was open 24 hours a day. I mean, I, that was just, uh, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, my first jazz records were bought. There was a place called, it's kind of like a Talbert's. I forget what it was called. It was a little clothing store. It was a clothing store. And in the back, it, it was like upscale clothing store. But in the back, they had record bins. And you could go in there and buy Breezin and Ronnie Laws. And, you know, my brother was play guitar, was really into rock and, you know, Journey and, and Jimi Hendrix, you know. And so, I mean, can you imagine, like, I was buying my record. There was one little store that dealt with records and some other stuff, but it wasn't open on a regular basis. Um, and but so it was either Eddie Harrell's Auto Sports or the closing. I forget the name of this, but the clothing store, right? That's how I got my records. And then to come to a place where the record store was open twenty, I used to just, I would spend hours just looking through the record bin saying, man, look at all these people who play music. <laughs> you know, so stuff like that. Uh, I had never been around people from really this, uh, as many diverse backgrounds, mm -hmm. you know, people from all over the world. That was, that was really fun and enlightening for me. Uh, Boston at the time had some, it was, so I came in 79, it was right at the tail end of the busing and racial crisis in Boston. So there were some funny vibes for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I was from the South, so that wasn't anything new. Mm -hmm. uh, but just like the, the, the vitality, the liveliness of it, the amount of people, 
people at Berkeley playing all the time, people playing on the streets. It was a little more hippie-ish mm -hmm. around the 150 building and all of that. It was a little bit closer to the red light district. Then it was <laughs> a little sanitized by comparison now. Uh, it was just fun. I mean, I, I had, I knew after about three days that uh, there was no doubt in my mind, though I didn't know much about music, but I was confident that I was meant to be a musician. This, uh -huh. I felt there was a huge part of me that felt like, well, I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah. Right? You know, you come from a small, I mean, I come from a town where there were like eight musicians and 4,000 people. And everybody thought we were crazy. Who goes around dragging instruments, listening to records all day and all night and jamming and, and you know, who, you know, listen to, you know, you know, I was heavily in the P-Funk. And so my parents were like, You're, you know, what is that? You know, and, and some of the lyrics were a bit racy for the time. And so anyway, but that that was my impression. It was just alive. It was just alive in a way that I had never imagined. And I knew it was me very quickly. That's great. Um, when you think about your undergrad study, were there lessons or moments where you really feel like you learned something that stayed with you? Like, like that you kind of think like, wow, that I hadn't thought about that before, or that's something I know I've taught to other students or that really affected you? Well, I, I, I learned a lot of great lessons in my first semester. Okay. So I'd say my first great lesson was my first ensemble teacher, Herman Johnson. Mm -hmm. And he said, get a metronome to work on your time field and get a pair of brushes, mm -hmm. which ultimately became the things that when people were hiring me to go on tour, and, and, and play full time were the two things that people identified in my playing that, you know, they liked my time feel. And I was known for being a, a very good brush player. So that was my first week wow. in my first ensemble, right? So that was one thing I learned. The other thing I learned in my first semester, my ear training teacher was a, a guy named Hank Hankinson. This is 1980. And he said, it's going to take you time to learn ear training, but don't worry, you'll learn it. Mm. Which he was right. It took me six semesters to get through my ear training. But when I came back to teacher Berkeley, I came back as an ear training teacher, <laughs> right? So that was another big lesson. And I had a class listening and analysis and I'm not sure if this was my first semester or my second semester, but it was with Dennis Cesari, who still teaches at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And he didn't, uh, it wasn't any one lesson, but it was the concept of the class, which is we can always listen deeply. Like listening is a developed skill. It's not the same as hearing. Like we can hear music, but listening is something different. And um, so those are three things that come right up to, to mind right away that I learned early on that um, completely 
help me not only transform me in that period, but help me into this day, you know, uh, continue to help me develop as a musician. And those happen pretty early on in, in Ber at Berkeley. You know, I want to come back to your teaching years um, because that's so fascinating that you ended up teaching a topic that you found challenging as a student. And I think that's going to be valuable. Um, but I think because I also want to hear you talk about your playing, um, Cheryl generally have some great questions to ask about how these lessons that you learned as a student really became foundational parts of your professional career as a player. So Cheryl, what is, what is on your mind listening to Ron? Well, first thing is that I identify with so many parts of your story, Ron. First of all, I came from a farm town and, you know, being into music. I mean, I, you know, I had musicians in my family and stuff, but you know, the kids my age, I didn't really get that, you know, like we didn't get each other. And then I remember going to my first jazz workshops as a teenager and you just felt like you were home and that experience. And I think, I think many of our students really feel that, you know, like they're in their different small towns anywhere around the world and they come to Berkeley and they're all these people that are in what, into what they're into. And, and that really forms your first community of, of musicians. So thinking about that, like those years, you know, and of course you went on to be in the ensemble department, run the ensemble department, like those early playing situations, how those set the foundation at professionally in your career, but also musically in your career, you know, just those times as when you're in a, as a student and you're jamming together, you're really working out all these, these really important aspects of playing music. So yeah, just your thoughts on that, like how that is so important in development. Also, you know, again, professionally, those connections you make with people, but more even the things that you're doing musically together. Well, I, I, I'll hear, here's one thing that I say as a student that I carried over uh, into teaching and uh, being an administrator. It's important that students have a chance to pursue who, who they are or who they're going to be. Do you know what I'm saying? Like at that time, I wanted to learn jazz. And I was able to immerse myself in jamming and learning and playing straight ahead jazz. And that sounds, it, it, there was a freedom that I found within that to become me, right? By allowing, feeling free to pursue things that were most important to me musically. And so when I got to the ensemble department at that time, we were by and large, a jazz department. We, you know, we had very few ensembles outside of that. And that was one of the things right away I set to change. It's like, you know, we, you know, now the ensemble department has like 60 different styles of music. But that came from, I said, well, everybody doesn't want to play straight ahead jazz. Right? Just like I didn't want to play other types of music. We have to have uh we have to have spaces for people to pursue them. And that, you know, we're so unique. Them is why, 
right? So that was something that even though, you know, you know, I can remember, for instance, going to the heavy metal club meeting one night, I just showed up, knocked on the door. Hi, I'm the ensemble department chair. <laughs> and they're like, it's 10 o'clock at night. What are you spying? And I'm like, no, no. Would you like to have heavy metal ensembles at Berkeley? I mean, I, I, I know nothing about heavy metal, but since you're doing it and you're into it, maybe you should do it in a way where you can get credit and have it be part of your focus. And so heavy metal, uh, the hip hop ensemble, the um, Middle Eastern ensemble, I, I mean, those, uh, uh, the, the, the roots ensembles like um, bluegrass and App, App, Appalachian music and all, they came because I went to student clubs and student concerts and events and said, if you really like this and you really want to focus on this, let's meet and see if we can make this a class. Reggae dub was another one that we started like that because that's what I learned. I learned I didn't learn about those styles of music, but I learned what it meant for me to be able to pursue what was important to me musically. And I wanted students to have that choice and that opportunity like I had. If I had come to school and they'd say, well, and actually at that time, I did have to spend two years studying classical percussion. I had to spend two years studying temps, mallets, and snare, which I actually, I did some gigs like that because I was one of the few percussionists in Boston who could play hand percussion, drum set, jazz, and a tiny bit of classical percussion. By no means am I an orchestral percussionist, but I could kind of get through, you know, Handel's Messiah on the temps and stuff like that. But I wanted people, I wanted students to have that opportunity because I found that meaningful for me. You know what I love about that? Um, there's a term that someone used on used to describe me and, and some others, this term wrangler of musicians <laughs> that was being introduced one time. You know, she's a, a performer, arranger, and wrangler of musicians. And that's what you've done definitely as a chair, as you described. But before we start hit record, we were kind of going down memory lane a little bit. And um for, for everyone who's listening, like I was telling Ron that um, I had a teacher who wanted me to expand my listening horizons as a young classical musician and wanted me to free up my phrasing and have things sound organic. So she started bringing me to hear jazz musicians and I ended up hearing Ron at the Iron Horse in the early 90s um, with Christian McBride and with Mark Whitfield. And then when you're telling the story of your experience with that, <clears throat> it sounded like to me that what you were doing is you had this period of your professional career, you were literally wrangling musicians to go do gigs and then joining different bands as a drummer. So you were like the wrangled and the wrangler. And that seems to have come out of this experience as well. Yeah, you know, like it, it's, you know, there are people who, who helped me, encouraged me, suggested things to me, criticized me in a good way. And it kind of put me on this path of, of development. And then when I saw musicians who were a little younger than me, and I saw them kind of, I, I won't call it floundering, but you know, looking, then I, I felt you know, the same way about them. Hey, you know, you know, you, you should check this out. You should try this out. If you're pursuing this, you know, 
And so, but it's it it's cyclical, right? It, it it it's a cycle. Like you never like you wrangle or you're wrangle, then you wrangle, but then you're as you wrangle, you get to a new place and someone else is wrangling, you know, it like it, it never it never ends, it never stops. You know, that's one of the beautiful things about music is that there's always something else around the bend that you never thought of or you or at least you've never experienced even if you thought of it you've never experienced because you know there's a limit to how much we can experience at any given time and so i was always dragging young musicians like the older musicians were dragging me around boston and invite me out to uh you know, not even sit in. <laughs> you know, sometimes we I, we live in the culture of where it's quick now. Like people, you know, I want to come to you, you can sit in. Can you hire me? But when I first started going to see the old older musicians, when they were first wrangling me, it was like come and sit in the back, and then come and sit in the front, and then maybe you can carry my drums, and then okay, it's the end of the night. There's not many people here. You know, how about behind the drums and you can sit in and, and, and play with these musicians, but it was not in a, you know, they, I had to gain their trust in a certain way that I was sincerely interested. I didn't have to impress them as a person. They accepted me as a person, but before you, you know, music is a sacred thing and they wanted to make sure that I was, I was clear on that. So, you know, they wrangled me and then at points I was wrangling Younger, younger musicians. And I guess as a teacher now, I'm still wrangling uh, musicians of all ages. But I, I do remember that there was kind of like steps, you know, like, uh, uh, and even when I started gigging, I would like, uh, if I had a gig like in, let's say, Worcester, you know, 50 miles outside of Boston or where it is, I would drive back and meet my teacher, Alan Dawson, to work out a bar and pack his drums and carry them to his car for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, after I had played my gig, packed my drums, I would drive back in a hurry, pack his drums, put them in the car, just for a few extra minutes for him to talk to me about music. Right. Just to hear him talk about what it meant to see Cozy Cole or Big Sid or what he admired about Buddy Rich or what, whatever it was, you know, um, you know, that was all part of the process. And I saw that as part of the wrangling. That was part of their wrangling me, you know, like uh, allowing me in their lives a certain way. Mm -hmm. What were some of the things as you started to, to grow as a young professional, what are some of the things you had to practice and develop further you know, like what, what were some things maybe on gigs where you thought, oh, wow, in order to play this music effectively or to be able to demonstrate what I want to do, here are some of the skills I really have to work on. Brushes. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I fundamentally could play brushes and very few people could. There's more, I think there's a higher percentage of drummers who play jazz now who play brushes well, but back then, because of the influence of R&B and rock and fusion, fewer drummers really took brush playing seriously. I didn't, I took it seriously, but I, and so I could do it. But one time I was on a gig and I realized 
the band is playing and they're progressing and they're developing their solos and but I'm still playing the same brush pattern. Like I haven't changed anything over the last three minutes of the song. I had to learn how to become as expressive and fluid and fluid and have corresponding vocabulary to everyone else in the band. And that was that was uh, a hard uh, task. Um, so that was one thing, playing soft was another thing. I worked really, really hard on. I worked really, I used to practice playing soft by trying to play in my apartment with no muffling without disturbing the neighbors. Oh, wow. Right, that's how I learned how to play soft. I would play the Alan Dawson ritual on my snare drum with no muffling and try to play. And sometimes they would complain, you know, but I used to try to play like my, you know, practice so soft that it didn't disturb my neighbors in an apartment building. Mm -hmm. So that helped me, um, that was something I had to learn. I had to learn songs mm -hmm. and I had to learn how to adapt. I had to learn how to treat every musician as an individual. Like it's not how I want to play or how I intended to play or how I thought it should go. I felt as a drummer, because I, I never considered myself the greatest drummer. I didn't have the most chops. I wasn't the most creative. I had to find a way to endear myself musically to the other musicians. And I did so, I think, by putting them first. Like when I got to the gig, you're first. I'm here to play for you, to support you, to make the music sound great. And whatever it is the band leader wanted to come across musically, I committed myself to that. So that was something that I had to learn. And, and, it, and it, it, when I was young, it allowed me to work. I worked a lot. You know, I, I would say my first year out of school was really rough. I started gigging my second year. By about my fourth year out of school, I was playing 250 to 300 gigs a year between New York and, and, and upper New England. So I was working and then I eventually went on the road full time. But when I was playing locally, I worked a lot, you know, but I, I think that's what it was. It's not that I blew people away with my chops, though I, I think I had pretty good chops and I was studying with Alan Dawson, but really I tried to, and I think for any musician, even if you're a soloist, I, I think that's a, a infallible approach. It's not the only approach for sure, right? It's there are a lot of different approaches and I'm not saying that that's, but that one, if you endear yourself to the other musicians based on how seriously you're taking their success, that you can never be wrong. You can never be wrong supporting the other musicians on the band saying, okay, what the instrument, what the style, you know, and that could be mean bashing the you know, heck out of the drums. It's not just playing soft. You, you might be playing music where they need, no, they need you to fire it up. You need to bash or you need to scream on the guitar or you, you know, there are a lot of, you know, I've, I've seen you play Kim. I've seen you play, you know, technically in a lot of different ways, very technically profound, very sensitive. I've seen Cheryl, you know, play hardcore straight ahead or burn up some rock. 
oriented stuff, you know, that's giving yourself over to the music and what it needs, not based on what you uh, perceive you want to do or you just practice what you think is cool. So that was an important lesson to me because it allowed me to pursue my dream of being a performing musician and gig full time. Mm. Right? Sometimes people think if you just can blow everybody away on your instrument, then you'll be able to gig full time. And there's sometimes you need to be able to get down. Don't get me wrong now. They're like, there's sometimes you need to be able to get down. But that can't be the end of the story. So that was probably the biggest lesson I learned to endear yourself to the musicians you're working with. And they'll want to play with you and they'll want to hire you and give you money. That, that's some of the best advice. You've summed that up so great. Uh, just, and that that came through your, you, you know, you found yourself at some place of limitation. I always find those places where you hit your limitations are the most important times because that's when you get creative and that's when you really make a big leap. You know, people get scared of that. They get, you're going to hit some wall. And you found that because that, what you said is the truest thing about um, being, in a particularly in a rhythm section. You'll, you'll really be successful if you know how to be in a rhythm section, be a team and all those musical skills in there with dynamics and um, yeah, it's not being the most burning soloist that's that's going to open those doors. So thanks for sharing. That was <laughs> right. put so well. Yeah, I, I think I know a lot of students are going to really get a lot of out of you sharing that. Well, well I know you both understand because I see it in your plan. Mm. Right. I mm. see it in your plan, you know, um, and it, it, it's true because we want to be successful. Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me, um, we were having conversation a couple weeks ago with David Gilmore about being a side musician, and he said some similar things. And I'm wondering, like, this is something we talked about with him and, and with other musicians. You are serving the music and you're serving the other musicians. And you're also developing your voice. And so for you, um, what's the balance? What's the honest balance there? Like, you know, where you're true to yourself and you're doing all the things that you said so beautifully that are right on. Because I think some students kind of misinterpret that if you are finding your voice, then you're not doing those other things. In reality, I think you probably cannot find your voice unless you're willing to serve the music and the other musicians. Well, I, that's, that's the answer. I think you find your voice when you're being real with yourself as you serve the other musicians. You find yourself, you know, kind of through that. That's that's where your musical priorities and values come to the top. When you're being yourself and you're serving the other musicians. What's left, you know, that's you. Like you're serving the other musicians. You're being honest about uh, who you are musically. You know, like my, I, I, I had... My college roommate was a very great drummer, Billy Kilson, right? And we would listen to the same Max Roach record, Philly Joe Jones record, and take away from it two completely different things. And I, you know, we were competitive in the sense that we always wanted to get better, 
but I knew that the way he played drums, it didn't fit my personality. So if we went to a gig and played with the same people, it was going to come out differently. And I was willing to accept that. Like willing, you know, it's part of a bigger picture, actually. Before you can accept yourself musically, you have to accept yourself. Yes, that is absolutely right. Right? You have to accept yourself. Like I, you have to be happy with... You know, it's like, okay, I'm the type of drummer that's gonna play with colors. I'm gonna use the brushes a lot, mallets, tonality, the way I tune the drums, the way I touch. I spend hours and hours on my touch, my articulation. There are gonna be things that the musicians feel that aren't obviously heard because of the subtle nature of them. Um, um, you know, short strokes, long strokes, you know, inner dynamics, not only of the, the four limbs, but the inner dynamics of a phrase, you know, how are you going to build an arc? And we, you know, that's who I am because I'm kind of a sensitive, emotional person. Right. <laughs> you know, I cry on TV commercials, you know, I'm kind of, that's who I am. I'm, I'm in tune to small pieces. So I had to accept that about myself, you know, and as I accepted it about myself, I was able to accept that about my playing. I'm not going to be a bombastic uh, drummer in the model of Tony Williams. I'm going to be much closer to Billy Higgins and Ed Thigpen. Not that I want to play and sound like them, but my approach to the drums, the dynamics that I use on the drums, um, are going to be more lying that along that line. And some people might want the bombastic side of a drummer. But then I have to understand what, what they want is not me. But I'm okay with that. Well, that. That right there is something. I think because I think we all have come to this realization that who you are is what you have. It's how you know what to work on if you can't demonstrate something. Okay, I'm gonna work on that. It's how you know what your strengths are and who you are as a person. I think as a student, it's so hard because you're afraid that maybe, who, what if who you are isn't good enough? What if you're mm -hmm. so insecure about who you are that you can't, like it's, it, we had this conversation in my class today. Like just, if you want a clear phrase that you're gonna improvise or write in our ensemble, you have to be okay with what you do. And that in some ways is really hard. What do you say to, to young musicians who are having a hard time just kind of claiming who they are? I think then that has to become the focus. Okay. Even while you're de developing as a musician, working on your skill, um, accepting and becoming comfortable uh, with who you are, which is a lifelong process. You know, I don't want to make it sound like I figured it out. I'm good. You know, it's a lifelong process. We change, we evolve, we grow. And we have to allow ourselves uh, grace. We might not have it all figured out at the time, at any one time. We might not feel good, you know, but we have to say it's okay. I mean, that was something, I was such a driven person that now you want to talk about something that I had to work on on a long span that affected my, you know, it's okay not to know at the moment. 
it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to have a moment of self doubt. Like none of those things represent failure because that's really what it comes down to. If they don't, if people don't like me, if I don't impress them with my playing, if I, if I'm not popular, if I haven't learned the, the in lick or I don't have the right acts or any number of things, you know, I don't identify the way people think I should identify. I don't see the world, you know, then I'm a failure. So we have to take failure out of the picture and allow ourselves grace to say, sometimes I make a mistake. Sometimes I'm a little confused. I mean, even as, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm way closer to retirement. I'm actually two years away from retirement age, right? Than I am to being a student. I'm a grandfather and I'm still sometimes seeing myself, hey, no, he's up. You know, just go play the drums, mm-hmm. right? Don't, don't, it's gonna be okay. And so I think that's a big part of, of you know, finding yourself is allowing yourself room to grow, to think about things differently, to doubt, to ask, to question, um, to feel good about things, to admit that you may have gotten it wrong or, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I think we have to allow ourselves grace. We're, I think our students, I understand that we're driven. I, I was very driven. Don't get me wrong. I was very driven. Still am, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we have to allow ourselves our humanity. We have to allow ourselves some grace. So, I, yeah, I'm not sure who I am as a musician yet. Okay. I mean, Miles Davis says, it took a long time to learn how to be myself. Right. Right? That's one of the greatest, most influential musicians of all time. It just took a long time to learn how to be myself. And so I think, but what we don't want is to claim failure and it stops us from developing. So you try this, so you try that, you try this, you try that. Eventually you start to say, this feels natural. This, you know what, I didn't realize this would be a part of who I am, but I accept it. And musically, life-wise, and then because we know being a musician and creating music is not separate from who we are as people. Right. Right. And so I think if I have any advice about that, trying to balance it, just allow yourself some grace, learn, develop, be open-minded to what's out there and who you are, right? Try not to be who you think other people want you to be. Hmm. And, 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 you know, I will say, I know I, 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 my answers get long, but I, I'm going to say one thing. That's okay. The greatest thing that my parents ever did for me, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. There was times when my family struggled financially. Um, but the greatest thing my parents ever did for me they were like, whoever you are, be that. Mm. They never questioned me on who I was. They never said, you need to be more like this. You know, I mean, they, they didn't want me like, you know, off the hook, breaking the law or stuff like that. But right. they never questioned me 
on who I was. They was like, oh, is that who you are? Be that. And that's what I try to do to my children, you know, and that's what I try to do to people I mentor, my students. And it's the greatest gift my parents gave me because I never, once I learned that, then I never felt bad about who I was because they were like, we accept you. You want to be a jazz drummer and leave a Husky, North Carolina, and go to Boston and be, we don't know anything about music. We don't know anything about jazz, uh, but we'll help you. And if that's you, I mean, my, my neighbors and all that, they were like, oh my God, you're smart. You could be a doctor or a lawyer. Your parents struggle so much to, to get their lives together and get your family. And you're wasting it all to be a jazz drummer. But none of that bothered me because my parents had already said, it's okay being who you are. And so that was like the, I, I say that all the time. It was the greatest gift of all the things they gave me. That was the greatest gift. You can be yourself, right? And it's a yeah. tremendous gift that we can give ourselves to. We can, you know, give ourselves a gift of being who we are, claiming it. And you know what? Because I'm comfortable with who I am, I'm very comfortable with who other people are. I don't get intimidated. I don't get freaked out. I don't, you know, it doesn't bother me who other people are, or how they see themselves or how they play or how they think about life. As long as they're not hurting people, right. I'm cool with it because I'm comfortable with I am. You know, you know, Nina Simone said, when we're not free, we're murderous. Mm. That's what she said. So anyway, that's my... I you love that. Feel free to cut me off at any time. No, we want you to talk. And I'm looking at Ian as you're talking because he has this question he asks every panelist. And I think you've actually started to answer it really beautifully as you're talking. So Ian, what is on your mind? What do you want to know more about? Yeah, so I've never felt like I didn't have to ask this question because I feel like you've already touched on it like a ton already. But uh, it's a thing we ask everybody. Um, and you're going to have a unique perspective, obviously, because you've seen Berkeley, like just completely comprehensively, like most people haven't, right? Both from a student all the way up to Dean. And uh, the question that we ask um, everybody is like, when you were a student and, you know, you're asking questions, you're going into lessons, now looking back and you're in a different role, like what's something that you might think like, you know, students might not think to ask this, right? You're asking one question, but maybe the answer actually lies in, a, in another question. Like what's a, a question that students should be asking, but they might not even think to ask it? Well, you know, the current generation asks a lot of questions. They're not afraid to advocate for themselves. Um, I think the question that I, I, I wish students would ask, and I talk about it, and I, and I did touch on a little bit, is what else? What else do I need to be successful? You know, besides the notes, what else? You know, and we don't talk a lot about uh, 
well, we, you know, we don't have a formalized place in our curriculum uh, where we talk about personal development in that way and, and, and seeing yourself uh, from the inside out. Like we talk a, a whole lot about the physical, right? And we talk a whole lot about realization and thinking about music and analyzing music. But from the inside out, like what, what about me else do I need to develop or should I think about, um, you know, uh, when I graduate? I, a few years ago, I, I did this, I did it ad hoc and people asked to make it a class, but I, I haven't had time. But I had some students that I was mentoring. And I said, okay. And they were talking about, you know, we're graduating this. And I said, well, what do you, what do you think about your life? What kind of life do you want to have? Do you want to be in relationships? Do you want to make money? Do you want to own a house? Do you want to live in a specific place? Do you want to be a band leader, a recording artist? You know, how do you, are you just graduating and saying whatever happens, happens? Have you, have, do you have a plan? Do you have, and they were like, no, we never really thought about it. So I, I had this exercise. And we would write down, uh, I, and I think I did three of these sessions. You write down what you want to accomplish artistically, career-wise. How do you want to continue learning? What do you want to continue learning? Now that you, you know, you can play your butt off, do you want to learn about business, production, you know? What are you doing about your long-term physical health? Have you thought about that? Like, you, you, you know, your physical health. What have you thought about your mental and spiritual health? Like, and I'm not talking about any particular doctrine or doxology. That's not what I'm talking I'm talking about how do we get up every morning? How do we put ourselves uh, in a place where we get up every morning and feel enthused about the day and what we're going to take on? Right? How do how do we put ourselves in that in that place where we live joy, you know, joy? Because like, you know, going back to what I was saying about Nina Simone, when when we're not free, we can become murderous. You know, people can be quite mean to each other when they're unhappy with their lives. Right. And then I said, Well, and what do you see yourself relationship-wise? Do you see yourself having friendships? Have you thought about that? Do you see yourself with a partner, significant other, family, you know, like, how would you like for that to look in your life? There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'd like to have this type of relationship with a funk, you know, that means this. I'd like to have it mean this in my life. And there's no right or wrong answer. There's no right or wrong answer about how I want to feel spiritually or, or any belief or any, uh, uh, you know, maybe some, maybe yoga helps you calm your mind, maybe Tai Chi, maybe going to church, maybe chanting, maybe, you know, it's like all these things help us feel whole and be whole, you know? And so, you know, that's what I wish students would ask for. Okay, we got notes, but life is so much more than the notes. Is there ways that I can look at the big picture? And so I did it with students. And the first group I did it with were students that I had mentored. It's kind of a cute story. 
they couldn't get any into the high rated ensembles, right? And they were upset they couldn't, they had ratings of three and four or something like that. And at that time I hadn't played for uh, four years because my wife had been sick and I had spent four years caring for my wife and I hadn't practiced and played for four years. So they came to see me because they were upset because they couldn't, and I said, well, look, I have an idea. I haven't played in four years. You're trying to improve. Why don't we do it together? <laughs> right? Well, you need to learn these tunes. I need to relearn these tunes and my, you know. And so we ended up in the end of the stories, we ended up being a band for 10 years and ultimately doing tours and TV shows and everything. But when I first did this exercise with them, I said, now, one of the things I want you to do is put down on your, in your five categories, what you hope to earn for the next year. A year later, we were in Cape Verde on the road playing a festival. I said, okay, you guys thought I forgot. Tell me about your plans. And they were like, man, we've exceeded everything that we wrote down. I have a better relationship with my family my you know, my partner, my girlfriend, whatever. I'm gigging more. I've been more focused, even though I'm out of school, about learning. I've been working out. I've lost one person, had lost 17 pounds. You know, like these things came to fruition. These had these things had nothing to do with notes per se. But they're like, man, because these other areas got better, my gigging is better, my playing is better. So that's what I wish students would think more about, like, there's more to life than the notes. Now you have to be committed to, to be a success as a musician. So don't, no one, I don't want anybody to under, you know, underestimate that part of it. I practice hours and hours and hours, and I still practice three hours a day. I would practice more if I had time, but I still practice three hours a day. Right, so I'm not saying there's ever any way, there's no shortcuts to developing our craft, but I wish that younger our students would understand that along with developing our craft, there's life outside of that and we have to develop it and it's strategic, right? It's strategic. We can't predict the future, but we can articulate our goals and objectives for our lives. So that's that's the thing I wish students thought more about. And and people after I did those, I did it with a person who wanted to become a Berkeley teacher, who's now a Berkeley teacher. But you know, people asked me to do a class on it. I just didn't have time, and, and I don't know if I could make it worth credit money for sixteen weeks. You know, but it's something that we we had begun talking about before the pandemic right within the division how do we feed into business and entrepreneurial skills and things like that for our students so we're thinking about it but that, that's the question I, I i wish students would ask cool yeah that's a great answer um you know it, it makes me think like i'm listening to you talk and kind of jotting some things down it's fascinating to me that a lot of the experiences that you had and things that were challenging to you or moments where you started to realize your philosophy and what is important to you have really translated into the way that you are as a faculty member, 
as a chair and now as a dean. And specifically, it caught my ear when you said that ear training was really challenging for you. And so you worked really hard on ear training. And then when you were asked back as a faculty member, you first were teaching ear training. So there was obviously something in that experience of having to learn something that was challenging that allowed you to become a good teacher. And then secondly, the thing that caught my ear was talking about supporting musicians on the bandstand and looking at what's needed in the moment and how you can bring your skills and experience. That seems to me as a chair in the performance division, how you lead the performance division as a dean. So can you make some connections for us? Like from your perspective, like what were the things that were hard for you as a young musician that translated into you being a teacher? And then what, what about being a drummer and being a good ensemble player and colleague translate into you being a dean? Well, yeah, that's so you, you, you kind of answer for me. <laughs> you know, I worked really hard on ear training and I realized, you know, that challenges can be overcome. Not all of them, but, you know, if you don't try, you don't have a chance. And so it made me understand, well, it made me sympathetic to other, people, other people's challenges. That's one thing it made me, you know, like, don't forget actually how hard this was for you, right? Okay, yeah, you can learn a Roy Haynes solo now, right? But don't forget how hard this was for you uh, trying to match a pitch and, and sing the pentatonic scale and, and, you know, so it's made me sympathetic. And yeah, I think the challenges, you know, can become a strength if we can overcome and meet the challenges. This morning I was on a meeting with Wayne Shorter, like the, the Global Institute board meeting, and he said a challenge is a gift. Ooh. Isn't that deep? Yeah. He said challenges, a challenge is a gift. Mm -hmm. Because it allows you to, and what I took that mean, it allows you to learn more about yourself. Right. In a lot of different ways. So I, I would say that that's what challenges do. They help us learn about ourselves and everybody has them. I think that the, once I realized other people had challenges, like I saw people whipping through ear training you know, getting a dictation on the first try, and I've gotten the first, the third, and the last note right, and everything else was wrong, right? I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't stand a chance. But then I would see that person do something that they struggle with. And I said, and not that I was happy that they were struggling. I said, oh, wait a minute. We all have strengths and weaknesses right and the other part is it never even the challenges never got to the point where I was I had moments that I was discouraged but never really wanted to give up because like I said I had that that self-assurance for my my family so I think challenge is a gift I think that's important challenge is a gift connecting you know being a player in a uh leader and some of the traits, I, I do believe that that's true. And, but I have to say, I first learned that lesson outside of music. 
right? And so I'll tell you how I learned the lesson. When I was younger, my family, I mentioned earlier, my family had some financial struggles. And then my, my parents started their own business and they started to do, they, we weren't rich by any, you know, but they, you know, we weren't struggling financially in the same way. And my parents had a, a, a mom and pop grocery store. So a little bigger than 7-Eleven and we sold gas and, and stuff like that, mom and pop. Well, as soon as the store started doing good, my father started giving away groceries <laughs> to people in need. And I was like, beside myself, I was like, man, we just, I mean, we literally were homeless. We finally got a nice house. We're not scuffling. We got a food, we got plenty of food to eat. We have a grocery store for God's sake. And it's making money. And now you're giving the groceries away. I was like, <laughs> I was just like, is it me? <laughs> you know, like, no, you know, like, is it me? Like we were scuffling four years ago. And as soon as things get better, what are you trying to get us back there? You're like, like <laughs> we, do we, do we have to be homeless? Again? Like, what are you doing giving groceries away? And he said something very, he didn't pay me much. I mean, I was losing it. And he said something that was, that stuck with me. He said, what good is a man who won't help his neighbor? And that's yeah. my overriding concept as a musician, as a teacher, and as a leader. Besides doing the job, who am I to not, <clears throat> to not help someone, to not go a little extra, you know? So whether it's on the bandstand, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in an office hour, well, whether it's trying to support a chair who's really trying to help students and faculty have the best experience, <clears throat> why wouldn't I go the extra mile? Like, I, I don't have to, but why wouldn't I? If I can, why wouldn't I? And so that's a lesson I learned and it does come through in music. Like, just, just play the organ beat. Well, I don't want to play the organ, you know, like, man, I've been practicing all this. You know, I want to go, check it, Google, check it, Google, check I don't want to play that. I got some Elvin stuff worked out here. I don't want to play that. Why? You know, but that's what the person needs musically at the moment, even if it's just as a security blanket, right? That's what they're at. They're saying what they need. Humble yourself and give it to them. Oh, I, I really, I really just want brushes for the whole thing. Okay. Oh, I don't want brushes. I know you, you, you like to play brushes here, but I don't, you know, like, so that carried over, I think, into pretty much everything I do. Why, why wouldn't I, it's in my power to, to help someone on the bandstand, to help someone in the classroom, to help a, a colleague, a fellow leader, you know, trying to do the best right thing by the students and faculty, just do it. Just do it, you know. I, 
we we had a problem one time. I was going through an ensemble department. You know, I was helping them move amps. They're like, the dean's down here moving amps. I'm like, well, the amp broke. So either the teacher was going to leave the classroom, the work study was already helping someone else, I'm just walking by. Just pick up an amp, put it on the wheels, and roll it 50 feet down the hallway to the classroom. It's not really that big of a deal, right? And so that I think that I, I try to help you know, have that permeate who I am. It was it was a profound thing that my my father said to me. You know, and and it, it goes into my community work and all the things I do in the neighborhood with young kids and music and sports. It's, it's all part of that same idea. He said, you know, what is a good, good as a man who won't help his neighbor? It's another thing if you can't, like you don't have the ability or the resources. But you just won't. I just gave the people some food. They're hungry. You remember what that's like, right? Okay, so what's the big deal? You got plenty, you have plenty to eat. We got a giant, you know, big ass freezer home with food stock, pantry stock over. It we own a grocery store. I gave away a loaf of bread and a dozen eggs. Why are you tripping? <laughs> right? You know, so that 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 lesson really does permeate a lot of how I see the world that if we can do something we that help people around us, we should. I love that. Um, hey Cheryl, as we're as we're kind of getting through this cup of coffee for those of us who even those of us who drink substandard American coffee, uh, <laughs> um, pop it for water. <laughs> um, Cheryl, what are your thoughts? as we're wrapping up. Yeah, I mean, thank you, Ron. You you really shared so many deep uh, and instructive things. I mean, that I'm gonna be thinking about for days and I know everybody listens to the students and alum um, will glean a lot from, from, you know, just how you relate what you do as a musician to what you relate as you do as a person. And if anyone is watching this, they see that my cat, Joni, <laughs> also <laughs> has responded in a positive way to <laughs> this conversation. So, so thanks for coming by and sharing with us. That's great. Hey, Ian, what about you? What are you thinking about? Yeah, I mean, that was just, that was a lot of, a lot of heavy stuff. I'm definitely going to be going back and listening to this a couple of times. Yeah. I don't purposely, you know, I just like talking. <laughs> I like talking about music and I like talking to younger musicians. And I want to encourage all the young musicians up here because we have such a great opportunity. You know, uh, I say all the time, music is a superpower. And so we just have to develop that, that, that superpower and have the life that we want. My Berkeley education did great by me. It really did. It, it allowed me to, to do what I wanted to do, to be a jazz musician, travel around the world, come back, raise my family, um, be involved with you know, community programs and, and, and helping young musicians. I'm always floored by how good our students are. Even though many, you know, I hear students say, wow, man, I got to get it together. And I'm thinking, 
geez, I was never that good on my best day. You know, I'm always floored by how good our students are, how thoughtful they are about music and how committed they are. And so I would advise our students, ride with that. You're probably on the path already, you know, and you have, you know, uh, leaders and teachers like you have in the guitar department. You're probably on the way already, you know, don't don't allow self-doubt to creep in because when I hear students play, I am, it's, it's the only, okay, this is an admission. It's the only part I miss about the pandemic. I don't miss going in person to meetings and stuff like that. <laughs> I don't miss taking three trains to work on my commute, but I miss seeing the students play because it's awe-inspiring daily when I walk through the hall. Matter of fact, when I have tough meetings, it, you know, that's when I start wandering, wandering the halls, peeking in the classrooms and seeing people because there's nothing like when I see our students play, I'm like, oh my God, they're so good. Who? man, what, how did they think that way? How, what made them come up with that song or that riff or that idea? I'm always blown away by our students. So um, I just encourage everybody to, you know, just stay on track, work hard and stay on track. I love that. And I think that's a good thing for people to take away that we all respect you and for, in what you're doing. And when we hear you, we hear all of these possibilities and we want you to have the courage to get to know yourself and to do the hard thing and not be afraid to do things that are challenging and difficult so that you can grow even more and i think um ron what you've brought is this what a beautiful way to tell parts of your story that show that at every stage that you found the courage to figure out who you were as a person and a musician and and how that informed the way you are as a player and a teacher and an academic leader. So thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Well, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope I didn't talk too much. Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Impossible. This was the most fun meeting we've had all month. So it's what a joy to get to talk about music like this. To talk about our students and, yeah. and uh, you know, it's, when you work at a place where you have two hotshot leaders sharing a department and uh, uh, people who are committed to the craft as well as the leadership and, and everything else, it's, it makes, you know, I have a great time as a dean. People are like, oh my God, you know, you must have a lot of paperwork. I'm like, wait, I had a fun. I work with a great, what are you talking about? I love my job. Are you kidding me? You know, and so, so thank you for having me. And allow me to share a little bit about my story. Well, you're welcome. And we are just as grateful to have a great musician and a great person as our dean. So thank you, Ron Savage. And coffee cheers to all of you listening. We'll see you next time on the next Coffee Talk.